you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. He tells his story of a woman named Madeline who was born blind and with cerebral palsy. You see, she came to the hospital at St. Benedict's when she was 60 years old. And as a part of her intake, she sat with the neurologist who would be responsible for her care. In this conversation, he noticed that she was highly intelligent and very well-spoken, eloquent when she spoke, and so uh, he also noticed that she couldn't do anything with her hands. The doctor remarks this fact, and he tells her, um, you must be really at home with Braille as you're part of your reading because you're so uh, well-spoken. She responds, no, I'm not. All my reading has been done for me. I can't read Braille, not a word. I can't do anything with my hands. They are completely useless. And she lifts her hands and she says, these useless, God-forsaken lumps of dough, they do not even fill a part of me. The neurologist was baffled by this because her condition of cerebral palsy normally doesn't affect the hands. And so he realized this was more a part of uh, the story she believed about herself rather than her actual condition. So secretly, he got with the nurses who were a part of her care, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put her food on her table, but just out of her reach, just out so she would have to reach out a little bit further. And so days of this happened, and she's always complaining to the nurses, you're always putting my food too far. And so one day, she finally has it. They did it again to her, and so she reaches out her hand, and she's able to like lay hold of a bagel and toss it into her mouth, right? But for the first time in a long time she's ever used her, the first time in her whole life, she actually used her hands. And she realized what was now possible for her. So over the next several months, she progressed rapidly. And she was able to start using her hands intricately to the point where she began doing sculpting. And she became known as the blind sculptress of St. Benedict. And people would come and to buy her sculptures. And so we see here in the life of this woman, Madeline, The same hands that she thought were useless, God-forsaken lumps of dough that didn't even fill a part of her were the very same hands that were sculpting works of art. The only difference here is that they were the same hands, but it was the story she believed. She believed her hands were useless. It has been what she was told her whole life, but that certainly was not the case. Brothers and sisters, hear me in this. The stories we believe shape the futures we live into. The stories we believe shape the future we live into. We've been in a series entitled Behold. And the whole point of this series has been for us just to behold Jesus, just to simply look at him, to read stories about him, and for us to make a decision about who we think he is. And this whole series is leading us into Easter to simply consider this man Jesus. Now, if I'm perfectly honest, I believe a lot of our assumptions about Jesus 
don't come from direct sources. They don't come from him, from Jesus, who he's represented him as himself, but rather they come from stories that uh, we believe about Jesus come from uh, what others people say, other people say he is, who other people say he is. The stories we believe about Jesus aren't from our own reasoning, understandings, or encounters, but rather the stories of, uh, of others and who they say that he is. And this image of Jesus seems blurry at best because you have these beautiful stories told by broken people. You see, some of you may have come in today because you are curious about Jesus, but this whole church thing to you is very skeptical. You're not quite sure of it. You're like, Jesus, I'm cool with. The church, not so much. And so there's a part of you that may feel compelled towards Jesus, but another part of you that thinks, man, if these are Jesus' friends, I don't know if I want anything to do with these people. And I don't know if I really want to do much with Jesus himself. But brothers and sisters, hear my plea this morning. Do not judge Jesus by the church. Let Jesus speak for himself, please. Hear me in this. This is by no means an omission of the church or her responsibility for her sin. But I am giving my life to build a healthy community here centered around the teachings of Jesus. But here this is a plea for me as someone who has encountered Jesus to please give him a chance. All I'm asking you to do in this series is simply behold. Just look. Just look, at your, look for yourself at who Jesus is. Maybe some of you are sitting here, and it's not the stories you believe about Jesus, but it's actually the story you believe about yourself. You resonate with that story of Madeline. I have a sense this morning that there are those of you in here right now who are being kept from all that Jesus has for you because of the lies that you believe about yourself, because of the stories you believe about yourself. That the enemy has done great damage on the areas of identity as us as image bearers of God. In fact, this has been his motivation from the beginning. I want you to think about the Garden of Eden. And I want you to think about the temptation he brings Adam and Eve. He says, if you partake of this tree, you will be like what? God. But little did Adam and Eve realize they already were. They were already made in his image. And say so they forfeited that which they already have, they already had, uh, even though... Um, even as the, the, the serpent tempted them away from it. And so I have a sense that this morning that you already have been given an identity from God that you're not living in because of the stories you believe, the lies that you believe. Maybe this morning the story you believe is that you're damaged goods. Maybe you believe that, you know, Jesus sounds great and all this stuff, but man, I don't think he could ever want me. Do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've been? And the stories of people around you tell you that you are damaged goods. Maybe the story you tell yourself is that you are unlovable, that something is intrinsically wrong with you, that you are too broken to be loved, and that is why others have, uh, and that's why others have left in the past. And so why would God be any different? That part of your story is being left by people who said that they loved you, but they actually didn't. And so you think God might do the same. Maybe the story you tell yourself is that you are un unseen and unimportant. Maybe your whole life has been lived out on the margins. Maybe for you, you've not felt seen your whole life, and so you wonder, how could God see me then if people cannot? Wherever you find yourself on this journey this morning, I want to invite you on a journey with me to simply behold Jesus. And here's what I believe will happen. 
that as you look into the heart of Jesus through this story, that the love of God is going to melt away the stories you tell yourself and you will hear a new story, a new destiny, a new future spoken over you, that today by simply beholding Jesus, hope will be seated in your heart for who you could be. That the areas of life that you thought were, the, were broken are the very areas of life that God is going to use to bring beauty into his world. And so our scene opens in verse 36. It says this, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So here in the story, we are kind of stumbling in on a dinner party. And it sounds like the start of a bad joke. There's a Pharisee, a prostitute, and Jesus, right? It sounds like the start of a really bad joke. And so first we see um, that of the Pharisee, and then I want to talk about the perspective of the prostitute, and then lastly of Jesus. And so I think us looking through the lenses of each of these people will help us better understand the story. And so first I want to take that of the Pharisee. So when we read about the Pharisees, if we could be totally honest, we're not super fair to them, right? When you hear the word Pharisee, you automatically think in your head he's the bad guy, right? There might even be that music, blah, 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 when they show up or something like that, right? That the, the Pharisees are the bad guys. But really, theologically, they were closest aligned to Jesus, that if you were to map Jesus on the rest of the religious sects of the time, the Pharisees and Jesus were the closest to be put together. The Pharisees had the right theology, but they had the wrong practice. They believed all the right things about God, but it led to a life lived misaligned from God's heart. You see, they had such reverence and care and love to God, honor God's word that they took it too far and actually heaped burdens of legalism on the people in an effort to be holy. And so when we, give, when we think of the Pharisees, please cut them some slack. And if we're honest, when we read the stories and we read ourselves into it, we're never the Pharisees right? We're always the people on God's team that are like, yeah, take that, Pharisees, you bunch of religious hypocrites. But if we were super honest, a lot of us find ourselves in the position of Pharisees. We find ourselves in the people who are judgmental, who can be condemning, who can be misguided in practice and believe the right things. We find ourselves sometimes in the position of the Pharisees. So before you're quick to toss stones at the Pharisees, consider yourself. Consider your own ways. But Simon, we get his name later in the text, he grew up in the church. He grew up at synagogue. You see, Simon had dedicated his whole life to the word of God and to serving God. From a young age, Simon would have had to memorize the scriptures, and he spent all of his young adulthood learning and studying how to write and read the Torah how to honor God. He listened to countless hours of sermons from famous rabbis. He dedicated his whole life to this. And then he gets word of some homeless, self-proclaimed rabbi going through the places proclaiming that he is the son of God. And two things happen for Simon. One, he's curious. What is this guy all about? You see, Simon heard Jesus speak. And he was kind of blown away at how he spoke with authority. 
and passion and wisdom, and that when he exposited and opened up the scriptures, it was like nothing he had ever heard before. So many times when Jesus finished teaching, it says, the people were amazed because he spoke as someone who spoke with authority. Jesus spoke different than all the other rabbis of his time. So one part of Simon is curious. The other part of Simon is offended because of the things that Jesus was saying. I think about Jesus' famous saying of the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, you have heard it said, and quote a teaching from a popular rabbi, and then say, but I say to you, and, 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 and put a different spin, a different reality on the reading of God's word. This was frustrating because Jesus was undermining all the work that he had put in. All the things that he had given his life to. So Simon is conflicted, to say the least, about Jesus. Because on one hand, man, he speaks like somebody who has authority. On the other hand, I don't like what he's saying. Right? If this guy were a prophet of God, he would come and say, the Pharisees are doing it right. You all need to be more like the Pharisees. But that's not his message at all. And so curious to know more about Jesus and confident that you could refute some of his teachings, Simon invites Jesus over to his house. Now, this wasn't exactly how we would print it in our minds today of inviting someone over for dinner. When a Pharisee would invite somebody over to their house, it was almost like a proving ground. You know that you were showing up for a theological debate. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, come over for some carne asada tacos, you know. He was saying, come over and let's prove yourself. And so what Simon would do was invite all of his other Pharisee buddies to come and to test Jesus. And so this is not like a nice, relaxed, you know, dinner party. The tension is high here because Jesus has offended everybody in the room with his teachings. And so this is Simon's point of view. Now, as Simon is there and they're debating and they're having all this conversation with Jesus, we have, they would have other people who would come as kind of spectators to watch this theological debate, who would win, how it all pan out. But there were still some people who were on the invite list and some people who weren't. And the person who wasn't was this woman who walked in the door. And let's see her perspective of things. You see... She was, uh, the Bible calls her a sinful woman. This is a super kind way to say a prostitute. And almost biblical scholars are almost in total agreement on this. That this was Luke's shorthand way of saying that she was a hooker, for lack of a better phrase, right? That she sold herself on the streets. And so her being invited to this dinner party was scandalous, to say the least. It would, be, it would be scandalous for her to be there. And she wasn't invited. In fact, she actually crashed the party. And so for us, again, it's easy for us as we read the scriptures to not put ourselves in their shoes. But I would like to do that for just a moment for this woman. You see, for all we know, she was a Jew as well, which means she grew up going to church. She had dreams. You think when she was a little girl, she dreamed of the profession that she would find herself in that day? Of course not. She dreamed of having a family, I'm sure, of being married, of maybe helping with a family business. That when she, was, when she was young, she would dream of all these beautiful things. But somewhere through a series of events, those dreams died. And she lost herself along the way. You see, she found herself without a support system, unmarried and broke. And so she did the very thing she never thought she would do. She sold herself for some money. And her whole body, I'm sure, was riddled with shame. But at least tonight... She would have a warm meal and a bed to sleep in. But that night she didn't sleep a wink, I'm sure, and stayed up crying, wondering how she got here. But over time, though the shame remained, somehow it got easier just to deal with it. Days turned into weeks, weeks to months, months to years. And one day, 
Imagine herself washing her face and getting a reflection in the water, realizing she looks so different. She looks tired. She looks sad. She looks alone. And she wonders, how did I get here? Then one day she gets word that this rabbi is in town named Jesus. And he's making all the religious leaders mad, and he's making the poor people happy, and there's this draw to him. Word on the street is that he heals people. And so curious and interested, she goes to hear Jesus speak. And as she hears him speak, her heart begins to burn. As she hears Jesus talk about the coming kingdom, that the kingdom of God is not like the religious leaders and their fancy robes and their luxurious lifestyle, but instead it has come to liberate the poor. It has came to fight for the oppressed. It's come to sh uh, set the prisoners free. Her heart begins to burn. Could this man be sent here for me? What could he do for me? Now, when Jesus would go anywhere, crowds would follow. And so I'm sure it was hard for her to get to Jesus, but she hears word. Simon's invited him over for a dinner party. And so she races back to her house, and she grabs the only precious and valuable thing she has, her alabaster jar, which is a stone jar filled with perfume. This is her life's possession, all that she has to claim. And she arrives at the party. And she arrives in the door, and it's like the DJ thing screeches, right? The whole party stops, and everybody turns like, what is she doing here? And she's used to all eyes being on her for her reputation, but she sees Jesus sitting there, eating, chatting at the table. Now, back to Simon's perspective, he's having a good time here. He's trying to orchestrate this party. He's trying to balance all these things, and walks this woman in the door, and he's thinking, who the heck invited her, right? What on earth is she doing here? He's looking at the guys at the door like, dude, what are you doing, right? You had one job, you know? And so frustrated and concerned about the party, he doesn't know what's about to happen. And in all of this, we find Jesus. He's eating at the table. On one hand, he has a Pharisee who means well but is misguided and clearly doesn't understand who Jesus is. And on the other, he has this woman who's a prostitute, broken and looking for hope. And there's two things I want to point out here before we move on to the text. First, Jesus shows up where he's invited. Jesus always shows up where he's invited, even if it's uncomfortable. Jesus was not naive or blind to the fact that he was being invited there to be tested. Right? Imagine if after service I came up to you and said, hey, I want to have you over for dinner. And just so you know, I just want to test your theological acumen, see where you're at with the scriptures, your Greek, your Hebrew. Just come over. We're going to have a quick test. How would you feel coming over? One, you'd probably call me, oh, I got a stomach bug. I don't think I could make it right. You would be like, heck no, no way. That doesn't sound fun to anybody, right? Jesus shows up even though he knows that's their heart. Jesus shows up knowing he will be judged by the other people in the room. But he still shows up because he is invited. And this is the heart of Jesus, that our God is so humble, he would show up to a place he knows he would be judged, just at the opportunity to be with the people who invited him. This is his heart. The second is that Jesus moves towards people who move towards him. Both the Pharisee and the prostitute are moving towards Jesus. Simon and his curiosity and offense, and this woman broken and longing for hope. But both of them are moving toward Jesus, and Jesus makes himself available for them. 
and maybe this is you. Maybe you've been looking. Maybe you've been searching. And maybe today is this sign, this embodiment of faith saying, I want to come and to encounter Jesus. And I need you to know something this morning, that as you move towards Jesus, he moves towards you. That even in this single act of I'll just show up and sit in the seat and listen to this guy talk, Jesus is moving towards you this morning, wanting to meet with you because he loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. Now, the story goes on. It says this. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So the woman meets eyes with Jesus, and before she could even get a word out, she begins to just break out in tears, sobbing at the feet of Jesus. And with her tears, she's, she's sobbing at the feet of Jesus and realizing she's drenching Jesus in her tears. She begins to wipe it with her hair as to cleanse his feet. And as a sign of adoration and love, begins to kiss his feet and then anoints them with oil. Now, again, when we read the scriptures, we can, you know, kind of think, oh, it's just a normal Bible thing. This was weird for Jesus' time, too. Okay, this is what we need to understand. That this wasn't just like a Thursday afternoon with Jesus. Like this was strange for everybody in the room. It was the spectacle to see in that dinner, at that dinner party, was this woman doing this. Un everyone's uncomfortable. Everyone's like, can she do that? Everyone's confused as to kind of what's happening here. Now, a brief history of how the dinner table worked. It was not like a table where you sit at with the chairs and she's like under the table, like crying at Jesus' feet. The tables were really short, and so what they would do is kind of stack pillows, and you would lean on the pillows and kind of eat with one arm, and your feet would be kind of kicked one way. And so she's laying there at the feet of Jesus doing this. Now, from Simon's perspective, this is ungodly in all of its forms. So first of all, this was like a, um, it was an honor-shame culture, and so this act that this woman is doing is viewed as shameful. First, because of her reputation, because of who she is and the past that she has. She has no business being anywhere near a rabbi, for in their mind, her sin would taint him, right? Her sin would corrupt him. And so her even being there, right, was, was bad news, much less touching him, much less kissing him, much less crying on him, much less anointing his feet. This was all egregious. And there's not really like a modern-day translation to this, but I want you to imagine like a pastor's breakfast. These pastors come together to pray and debate theological things, and her stripper comes in and says, Oh, hi, pastor, all dressed up in her costume, and starts to do this. All the other pastors are going to freak out. Bro, how does she know you, right? What's going on here? You know, they would be, I can't finish my waffles after this. What is going on? You know, there would be so much confusion. Now, it's the same then. It's not any different. The place is silent. People are freaked out. Everyone's frozen, not sure what to do. And Simon thinks in his mind, this guy has no idea. If he were a prophet, if he was really from God, he would never let her touch him. Ew, you know, get off me. He would, he would be repulsed. He would be pushed away. But Jesus is inviting this woman, and Simon in his mind thinks, this is how I know he's not legit. Because he allows this. He allows for sinners to come near him and to ruin his holiness. 
us. I mean, think about Simon's perspective. The, the Pharisees uh, wouldn't want a Gentile or anybody who was seen as sinful to touch them. So as they would walk through the city, they would pull their robes in tight just so that no one would touch the hem of their robe in, in an effort to remain and keep holy. And here Jesus is sitting at the dinner table and this woman is pouring out all over his feet. Simon sees this woman as an interruption, as disgraceful, as committing sin against Jesus. Now the prostitute's perspective. She walks in and she sees Jesus and she just breaks down. She believes that this man has the power to heal her story, to make things right. That message that she had heard and speak burns within her heart. And her decisions were premeditated. It wasn't happen chance. She went home to get that alabaster jar because she wanted it to bring to him as a gift. She doesn't have much to give, but she has that, so she brings it. And most Bible scholars believe that, you know, for women in this day, this would be their most prized possession. It would be like an inheritance given to them to be able to have some sort of financial stability. And this woman has kept this as just this safekeeping, as this hope, and she brings this to Jesus as all that she has. You see, she's broken. She wants out of this life. She wants out of the bed that she's made for herself. And she sees Jesus as her way out. So when she sees him, she weeps. And seeing who Jesus is in all of his glory and splendor, she kisses his feet. Now, in Jewish culture, um, the feet were super dirty and people treated it as such. So as a commonplace thing that you would do is you would wash your feet before entering a home because even John Reagan talked about this a few weeks ago, you wear sandals everywhere. Uh, imagine wearing sandals everywhere. You probably have some flip-flops you've had to throw out, right, because of just uh, the kind of damage that they take. And so dirt, grime, all kind of stuff get underneath there. And so to come into a home with your shoes like that would be disrespectful, so you'd have to cleanse your feet. But cleaning the feet was the, was the job of a servant, no peer-to-peer -peer would ever do that. Someone, someone paid staff, hired staff, someone we see that perceived as lower than us would do that task because it was so degrading. And here this woman is humbling herself at the feet of Jesus, kissing his feet. And then she goes as far as to anoint them with oil, to pour out this expensive perfume over Jesus' feet just to show this is how much I love you. And what is Jesus doing all this? One, he has radical compassion on this woman. He receives her worship with gladness. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's awkward. Yes, it's weird, but he receives it because it's from her heart. Radical compassion gets messy. When we read a story like this, it's easy for us to be like, oh yes, Jesus, that's wonderful, that's great, thank you for doing that, you know, glory be to God. But if that were to happen in here, if somebody with that kind of a reputation would come and maybe worship as we deem inappropriate, we would all be freaking out. We'd all be scooting over. Why are they singing so loud? Why are they laying on the ground? We would be freaking out. We would scoot three seats over. You know, you'd be weird over there. We would be, we would be spinning. We wouldn't have any idea what to do. And so we in this story are Simon, not Jesus. Because compassion that Jesus shows here is uncomfortable. It's messy. When we receive people who are broken and lost without God, it makes the church messy. And this is exactly how Jesus wants it. 
And this is exactly the kind of people that Jesus came to save. When Jesus is asked, he says that he had not come for the righteous, but for the sick. He's come to seek and save those who are lost. Now, here's what's crazy. For Jesus, his holiness was never at stake. He was never in jeopardy of sin corrupting him. Instead, Jesus is so holy that when people come and encounter him, his life cleanses theirs. So the Pharisees' perspective was, I can't get near anybody who is perceived as unclean because then I'll be unclean. But Jesus moves towards the unclean to make them clean. And this is the biblical reality of holiness. That it is those who are in right relationship with God moving to those who are not, that they might become more like Jesus, that may become in right relationship with God. Now, here, Jesus perceived Simon's thoughts. Notice that Simon didn't say this out loud. He either mumbled it to his breath or said it in his mind, and Jesus immediately engages him. So be careful with your thoughts around Jesus because he can hear those too. And so Jesus moves towards Simon with this story. Verse 40 says this, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither one of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So Jesus decides to engage Simon with a story. And this is one of Jesus' favorite ways to do his teaching is through stories. He says, let me tell you a story. There's a guy who owes the bank $100,000 and a guy who owes $10,000. They've been getting the, the notices in the mail. They just can't pay it. They don't have any money. They've been struggling. And so they both come into a meeting with the bank to see what's going to happen. And the money lender is looking at them and he says, look, both of you, I'm going to forgive both of your debts. Now, both of those debts are a lot of money. One is extremely more than the other. And Jesus says, of those people, who's going to be more grateful, more thankful that their debt has been forgiven? The guy with $10,000 or $100,000? $100,000, Simon says, of course. And this is what Jesus is giving insight to what's happening here. When we encounter the radical grace of Jesus, it leads us towards extravagant worship. When we realize how much God has done for us, it leads us in the only natural response to give back to God. And that's what this woman is doing. And Jesus says effectively this. You know, whoever's been forgiven loves, whoever's been forgiven little loves little. But the opposite of that is whoever's been forgiven much loves much. You know who the leaders in worship are with their life are those who realize what God has done for them. And again, in this story, we would like to think that we're the woman, or even on Jesus' side, but the reality is, is a lot of times we're like the Pharisees. A lot of times we forget how much God has forgiven us. We forget the debt that we have owed. And so it leads us to a shallow type of worship. But hear me in this. When you encounter Jesus, the joy of forgiveness leads you to a place of overflowing love. When you encounter Jesus, the joy of forgiveness leads you to a place where love overflows. Jesus is teaching what is happening with this woman in the room. 
that those who realize their needs for the need for God are the ones who live lives of holy surrender on to him. The text goes on verse 44. Then they turned toward the women and said, or they, then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, "Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me the kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus begins this explanation of that parable with a simple question. Do you see this woman? Do you see her? What Jesus is inviting Simon to do is to look beyond the surface of this woman. He says, do you see her? Yeah, she's right there. No, no, no. Do you see her? Because when you see her, you see a prostitute, you see a dirty woman, you see a, li- a woman who's thrown her life away, you see a woman who maybe not has no love for God. That's what you see. But when I see her, I see a woman made in the image of God. I see a woman with a destiny and a calling and a purpose and a life ahead of her. I see a woman who is hungry to encounter the presence of God and is longing for the forgiveness of sins and is looking for a way out of her life. Yes, I see a woman who is broken, but a woman who is broken that God can heal. That's what I see when I see her. What do you see, Simon? What do you see? Two ideas here. One, Jesus sees the real you. The real you, not who you are today, not the lies you believe about yourself, but who he's made you to be. What would other people say that question of you? Do you see her? Do you see him? What would they say? Maybe they see a mom or a dad or a banker or a barista or whatever it is. There may be all these descriptors to tell you. And there may be things that you're not so happy of that people think about you. Things that you've done, decisions you've made, paths you've walked down. And when the world sees you, they may say these things, but when Jesus sees you, he sees something different. He sees the gifts that he's placed inside of you. He sees the image he's placed on your life. He sees the future and the hope that he has prepared for you. This is what Jesus sees. As a first idea, Jesus sees the real you. He sees you with all your faults all your quirks, all your brokenness, and still sees the same. A child, a friend, someone whom I love. The next thing is for us to become a kind of church who models the way of Jesus, we must begin to see one another as well. Not just for the characteristics we see on the outside, not just from the things that we like or dislike about one another, but for who we really are. We must move past the surface and move towards seeing the Imago Dei in every image bearer. To go beyond what our eyes can see on the surface and look deep into what God sees and ask him to say, Lord, show me these people as you see them. Lord, I see a difficult neighbor who is always getting on my nerves, who never cleans out their gutters, right? Lord, help me to see them like you do. Lord, there's Linda in accounting who always has a nasty remark to make about this, that, or whatever. Lord, help me to see her like you see her. 
whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation is, for us to become a kind of church that looks like Jesus, we must begin to look at people the way Jesus looks at people, which is seeing their image first. And Jesus uses this woman and her worship as an example for how he should be treated. He tells Simon, I came into your house. You didn't offer me any water to clean my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and cleaned them with her hair. He says, you haven't given me a kiss when coming in, which was part of Jewish custom, a kiss on the cheek is like a sign of respect and honor, but they did not show any of that to Jesus. But since I've been here, she hasn't stopped kissing me. He says, you haven't given me oil for my head, which is just basically this offer of hospitality, just to, you can be refreshed when you come here. And he said, she has anointed my feet with oil. He says, her many sins have been forgiven because of how her great love is shown. Simon only saw the issues with this woman, not the woman herself. That she was an image bearer who was broken and needed grace, not judgment. And Simon treated Jesus as second class instead of the honor that he was due. Now here's what's crazy about Jesus. Jesus could have walked into that room and demanded those things. Like he's God, right? That's like the bare minimum we can do is ask Jesus if he wants to drink or if you could take his coat. Like these bare minimum hospitable things. Jesus could demand those things, but he does not. He just participates. He just joins in. Jesus walked into Simon's house ready to receive that same worship, even though it wasn't extended. And in humility, he didn't demand it. But when the woman gave it, he gladly received her worship. Because this is what he's due. I say that to say this. When you get a revelation of who Jesus is, worship is the only natural response. When you get a revelation of who Jesus is, worship is the only natural response. Many of us treat Jesus as common, that he's just commonplace. He's just like us, whatever, and we don't come with the kind of reverence and love and worship and awe. There are those of you who are in the room who see people encountering Jesus in worship, and you think that's weird. They're lifting their hands, they're crying, they maybe fall to their knees. But on Sundays, when the Dallas Cowboys score a touchdown, that's what you're doing. You lift your hands, you fall on your knees, you're crying, they did it, whatever it is. And so we do this kind of thing for human systems, for human structures, but when we encounter the living God, we can't get our hands out of our pockets. Now, this is not a condemnation for you not lifting your hands, but this is a declaration for you to change your perspective on how you view God. That when you come to realize who he actually is, the only proper response is wholehearted worship. I'll give you everything. I'll pour it all out for you because you are worthy. Because this woman saw Jesus as what he was. Not just a teacher, not just a preacher, not just a smart guy, but the savior of the world who has the power to forgive sins, raise the dead, heal the broken, and give people a future and a hope and to bring God's kingdom here. And when we get the revelation, the only response is thank you. I'm in love with you. I can't believe you would do something like this for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And this woman was so enamored by Jesus, she didn't even get words out. It was just tears coming down her face, kisses off of her lips, and oil out of her hands. And so these are the three things I want to point out that she brings to Jesus in worship. First is her tears. She brings her pain. That when she comes to worship Jesus, she brings his pain, brings her pain. We have this understanding that in church we have to have it all together, and that's nonsense. When we encounter the living God, we bring what is in us. And for some of you this morning, you have pain. 
You have the loss of a loved one. You have a broken relationship. You have aches and pains of sin done against you. You have the aches and pains of sin you've done against yourself. You carry with you pain. And Jesus wants you to bring that to him. That that is true and beautiful worship. Did you know that two-thirds of the psalms are lament psalms? You know what lament means? To cry, to mourn, to cry out to God. Where are you? That's two-thirds of the psalms. You know how much worship music is lament? Less than 1%. Less than 1%. You have a whole book in the scriptures called Lamentations. A whole book of laments from the prophet of Jeremiah, crying out to God saying, where are you? The Bible is unapologetic about worship coming to him that's broken and honest. But in the church, we're just like, let's think about good things. Let's not do that, right? But that's not the human experience because if you've been alive for more than five minutes, you've experienced pain in this world. And God wants you to bring that pain to him. And know this, that in your pain, God was the first to cry. That in your pain, God was the first to cry. That Jesus feels your pain with you. And so this woman brings to Jesus the pain of her life, the decisions that she's made, the brokenness that she carries of the broken relationships and the way people have interacted with her, the way people have used her as an object. She brings that to Jesus through her tears. The next thing she brings is kisses. And this speaks of passion. Deep resounding love for God. This is what we were made for. When Jesus was asked to sum up the entire scriptures with the greatest commandment, you know what Jesus said? To love the Lord your God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. The primary relationship God wants to have with us is not of ruler and servant, is not of uh, a kingdom and king, it is that of father and children. It is that of love. This is why when Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray our father. This is why when the New Testament talks about us crying out to God, it's using the word Abba, crying out father. The primary way that we relate back to God is with love. Yes, holiness, yes, truth, yes, all of that. But first and foremost, the primary way we relate to God is through our love. And so when we worship, when we come to him, we bring devotion. We bring our love to Jesus, for he is worthy. And the next is oil, which is our resources. She didn't have much, but she brought what she had, which was her oil. Which was this symbol, this financial investment, this financial pouring out of all that she had for Jesus. And Jesus receives her worship. Now here's what's important. Jesus never dismisses her sins. He never says none of that's true. He acknowledges those are true and chooses to forgive her anyways. Jesus never says like, you guys got this woman all wrong. That's not true about her. It's like everyone in the room knew, including Jesus, her story. But Jesus says, that no longer defines you. I do. I say you're forgiven. He acknowledges it. He says, this woman has been forgiven for her many sins, acknowledging, yeah, she's a sinner, and Jesus calls her such. But then he changes her identity to something different as he forgives her and sets her free from her sin. Verse 48 says this. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this woman, or who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
here at the end of this interaction with Jesus, Jesus looks to the whole room and declares this woman is forgiven. And people are baffled by this. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Yeah. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And this woman comes broken and in pieces. But she leaves whole and with hope. And Jesus leaves her with those words, go in peace. The very thing she had been longing for her whole life, the very thing she had been looking for for years and years, she found in this man, Jesus. Peace. Peace with her past, that though she had done some things she regrets, though she lived a way that was dishonoring to God, she could have peace with who she was because she had been forgiven. Peace in the moment, that though she was judged by others, though others scoffed at her worship, though others were freaked out and weirded out by what she was doing, Jesus received it gladly. He says, I receive your worship. And to go in peace in the future, that she knows that she left that place changed, that she no longer bore the mark of prostitute, but she bore the mark of someone who had been forgiven, set free from her sin and her shame. I'm going to ask you to stand as we enter into response time. And Zion, we don't want to be people who just hear the word, but we want to be people who respond. I have a sense this morning that there are those who have carrying hurts from sin, either sin they've done to themselves or sin that's been done to them by others. And you've been carrying this with you. You brought it in with you this morning. It's a weight. It's a burden. It's something heavy on your life. And I believe this morning Jesus wants to heal you. He wants to heal that area of brokenness. He wants to heal that area of sin. And if that's you this morning, we want to invite you up for worship. We're going to have some people up here available just to pray, just to stand alongside you as, as we testify to the works that God is doing in you, to put our arm around you to affirm that God is speaking. We want to pray for those areas of healing. And I just have a sense that there's other people in here who just need to do business with God. There's something you need to talk with him about. There's something you need to wrestle with him about. You're the one who has that pain that you need to bring towards Jesus. And we want to invite you up to it. Anybody else who needs any sort of prayer for anything, please come forward. This is what this space is for. It can either be a space where you're thinking about lunch plans and what to do next or whatever, or this can be a place where you radically encounter Jesus. And we're just going to put a few moments here to sing some worship, to enter into prayer together, to do ministry together. And so please lean into this time. God wants to meet with you profoundly here this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you into the room to do what only you can do, to pour out your power. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.